Today I'm very excited to talk with one of the coolest cinematographers on the planet. Lance Accord, ASC, has shot some of the most creative, groundbreaking, and surprising films of the last 10 years. Being John Malkovich, an adaptation with director Spike Jones, Marie Antoinette, and one of my favorite films of all time, Lost in Translation, with Sofia Coppola. Lance came onto the feature film scene with Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66 in 1998. His latest film was Spike Jones, Where the Wild Things Are, according to my six-year-old daughter Maya, is the best film she ever saw. I love the film also, and I wanted to talk with Lance about it and his collaboration with Spike Jones. Lance was raised in Northern California to study photography and filmmaking at the San Francisco Art Institute. After graduation, he began working with acclaimed photographer-filmmaker Bruce Weber on documentaries, commercials, and music videos. After that, in the early 90s, he began shooting with some of the most creative directors of that period, including Michel Gondry, Stefan Sedenwee, Mark Romanek, and Peter Kerr, as well as uh, Coppola and Jones. He continues to break ground with each feature he shoots and has a thriving commercial directing career as well. He has developed a very visceral camera style, putting the camera right into the action, and his lighting, although naturalistic, makes for some of the most emotional scenes in cinema. So. That's the radio portion. Now we're, <laughs> All right. Now we're All conversation. Right. <laughs> sounded good. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about where the, where the wild things are. I mean, I really love the film. Great. I told you my daughter flipped yeah. over it. Yeah, that's great. I was really surprised, um, but she really liked it. And um, both of them did. Um, it's a really beautiful film. You really feel like you're with Max. Yeah. It's so emotional. I loved how... Um, you know, it's not sugar-coated at all, and I love that. You know, you really feel when you're in the house in the beginning, it's very real. You know, you can see um, Catherine Keener's amazing. You can see the, yeah. the mom and the son relationship like yeah. that. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about the style of that, because it seems to me very different than the rest of the picture. Yeah. And how you arrived at that. It's a little colder. It's yeah. a little more real. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, it was really trying to present the home life in as, as real and true a way as possible to not romance it at all, you know, because it's really documentary like in the way that it feels like the lighting's all naturally lit. It's mm -hmm. not, it's like it's making sure that all the light sources feel motivated. Like if you just kind of came in, you know, even though we were lighting stuff, but, you know, just trying to keep it as natural as possible. I think where it might, where the documentary probably doesn't describe it very well at all is that the camera work itself uh, wasn't, was meant as much as possible in terms of camera position, camera movement, to be as subjective uh, with Max as much oh, as possible, right? right? Um, so rather than feeling like you're watching Max, you're kind of with Max, seeing what Max is seeing and seeing, yeah. seeing him see it. Yeah, um, it worked really well. It's pretty subtle, the differences, but I feel like we... You know, that was the one when Spike came... We very first started talking about the film. I mean, that was one of the things he wanted more than anything for the whole movie. Yeah. Was that the camera always feel like it's with Max. And it really and, works. You know, and it really so does. Yeah. It really does. Just and a simple uh, example in the beginning is that scene where she's at the computer and she's having a bummer of a time. And yeah. Max comes in to try to cheer up and he's on the floor and then you have that great shot looking up at her yeah, from under yeah, the table. Yeah. And you really feel like, you know, you are with Max. I think the way that that cool. shot happened, you know, it's funny as a cinematographer, sometimes a director can say something to you that then just triggers the whole way that you see shooting the scene. And what he right. said, 
I remember Spike describing Max pulling her pantyhose off of her toes, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, that he'd be just kind of absentmindedly while he was talking, he would be doing that. Right. You know, and I, I could almost remember doing that myself, like to my grandma or something right. when I was like two mm-hmm. years old, you know, it's like, but just that, that degree of intimacy, you know, it kind of, in a way that triggered the whole like, like, okay, I, I could, I just felt right away where the camera would be, how it should, how close it should be to Max. And, you know, it, it's, it, um, I, I love the way that scene, it, it really, it's very emotional, that scene it to is, me. Yeah. It's so Absolutely. emotional, you know, it really captures something about their relationship and Max and what he's going through. And uh, I think that the home life too, it's much more compressed, right? They're like, it's a, uh, in terms of scope and scale, it all really changes drastically after he gets in that boat. Yes. Um, and, uh, up until then, you're like in the car ride and, you know, uh, at school, you know, right. you're always just kind of, you, you, you're never getting any sort of overview whatsoever of the world around him. Right. You know, it's right. just like, you know, him, him right up in the, in the front. Um, the, you, know, you know, the film really differs from the book in that we didn't make a conscious decision to really change the look of things in a dramatic way from before he enters into the world where the wild things are and from his real world, you know? And that, I think we wanted to, that was a conscious decision not to do that or not to be heavy handed about the way that we did it. Because that's one of the things I really like about the movie is like, you know, that decision not to have the forest grow in his bedroom, that to leave the distinction between real world and fantasy world, if you want to call it that, even though we never thought of it as a fantasy world, but leave that distinction or that line blurry was really interesting, I thought. Yeah. And the biggest difference I felt while watching the movie is probably that the, the, the light seemed to be warmer. Yeah. And, yeah. and not, not in a sugar-coated way either, but it yeah. just naturally, that yeah. location lent itself to be warmer, the fires at night. Yeah, yeah, really definitely. beautiful color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved, I loved the whole color palette, uh, you know, which was... Kind of a whole other conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about, you you guys have done three, um, you know, incredible films now. I mean, talk about that relationship and especially the collaboration, how that works. And have you seen it change from the smaller being John Malkovich? Each film has probably, um, I don't know the numbers, but it seems like they've they've grown in budget. Yeah, yeah. You know, what has that... Well, we've learned, I mean, we've... We've changed, you know. Right. Spike and I have both changed, as well as, as well as everyone that collaborates with Spike. You know, we've we're pretty much all the same crew of people there. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's like, uh, you know, we've grown and learned a lot as filmmakers. Uh, so you know, it's funny looking back at being John Malkovich, like in, in you know, some of the, you know, the, look, looking at. I, I recently for for the talk we did at the HD Expo, I was looking at clips from the film and looking at some photos of when we were shooting that. You know, we've really we've grown a lot and evolved a lot. You know, that film was uh, for all. I'd done one film before, Buffalo '66, which was its own thing, and it was it's a, like a film experience. Uh, <laughs> not you know probably haven't had since really so but but it was a learning experience so i i, I had one film under my belt when i first worked with spike and uh mm-hmm. but um we were all really 
you know, in terms of just basic filmmaking, you know, and coverage and, you know, staging, blocking scenes and stuff, I feel like, you know, we've evolved and learned a lot since then. Um, um, this film, what was great about it, though, it is a new, a new thing, you know, the other two films were Charlie Kaufman scripts, and Charlie Kaufman right. scripts are very yeah. much, right. they're very distinctive, they, they are what they are. I mean, yeah. both of them, they share similarities in some way. Uh, the use of dialogues, similar. I mean, right. obviously, you know, very yeah. different films adaptation of being John Malkovich, but his his dialogue, you know, yeah. and and there's usually a lot of dialogue in his right. movies, you know. There's a lot of pages. There's a lot of pages to shoot on right. a day when right. you're shooting a Charlie Kaufman film. <laughs> I think adaptation had over 220 scenes or something. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot, right? So each yeah. day. And so the dialogue coverage alone um, as a cinematographer and just your workload for the day is, is a consideration, is a big yeah. component to your day was that storytelling aspect. And I think what was interesting about Where the Wild Things Are, and it was something that Spike and I talked a lot, was it was an opportunity to really visually tell a story, you know, right. where, you know, obviously the other films have a visual storytelling component as well, but there's sequences, sequences, long sequences, in fact, towards the end of the movie where there's no dialogue at all for like five minutes. It's just all visual storytelling. Which is a uh, which is funny because Spike and I have this running joke, and it kind of started on adaptation. It's like I would I'd get frustrated, and he'd be like, "What's wrong? What's you know what's wrong?" And I'd be like, "Well, where's the language of cinema in this scene? Like, <laughs> what, where's the language? Like, what's the visual language? Like, I just feel like we're covering all this dialogue, and right. you know that to make matters worse, we're covering dialogue where one actor is playing both parts. So yes. you can't right, even right. like shoot it like you know if, if you're going to design a, a, a camera move or a shot, you need to consider that it's the same actor playing both. So. Right. Right. Like, you know compounded things yeah. you know a lot for a lot of it but but um but and so that became kind of a running joke on this film because spike would be like you know this this film's all about the language of cinema he said now you yeah. know we're you know and i think it was to a degree you know it could like the the, the photography did tell the story i think spike uh really seized on the opportunity for that uh, that as well you know right. no it's it, interesting you say you know because sometimes when you're making a film you'll be two or three days into some heavier dialogue within the schedule and all of a sudden you start having I think uh, a bit of doubt about you know maybe we're doing too much of these simple shots and how do we you start it feeling like this? yeah you yeah. start feeling like maybe you're falling into a rut and there's redundancies right. and yeah you know uh, how do you fight that when you're um one way to deal with that and I think Sophia and I have done that on both of the films that we shot together is to come up with ways of shooting scenes that you don't need a lot of coverage for mm -hmm. um, the challenge there though is you need to have a real you know high level or a high degree of confidence in your actors and their performances yes. right because you're not yes, going to be able to cut around the performances to right. enhance the performances right. you know um, the films that I've done with Spike it hasn't been because the act, you know, he felt like he needed a ton of coverage all the time for the actors, but there's been other aspects to it. A adaptation, for example, is one actor playing both right. parts, you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, in, 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 in being John Malkovich to a degree, he, everyone was so against typecast that that became another performance challenge in a way, because right. people were playing parts of the, like, you know, they're, 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 you know, but, um, Spike, I think, too, uh, you know, 
sometimes it's difficult to approach shots as winners where you you know you know with him as well because he really loves the editorial process mm-hmm. in terms of being able to almost rediscover the script in a way okay and you know find shades in the writing that can be brought out more through certain performances than others so mm-hmm. so he really you know when he directs actors you know there's a pretty wide range of uh uh, of performances, and I think that he and Erickson Bronin, his editor, really, you know, through the through the course of editing, really, you know, w- work with the material in that way. You know, where uh, where where other directors might not do as many takes. You know, they they the film's almost edited right after you shot it. You know, right. it's a very very different approach. But I guess yeah, I mean, like I think that back to the original question though, like if you feel like you're just kind of covering dialogue and kind of getting into kind of conventional coverage, I think it is to design the shot in a way so it's more about the scene letting the scene play out and less about breaking it down into a whole bunch of setups right i love the way you seem to just so naturally organically go from handheld shots to try to a dolly shot to in in this movie there's some steady cam shots yeah yeah and it seems so natural as it's coming across the screen i know for me when i'm reading a script i'm you know, trying to think of how to make that happen, but you, you seem to do it so naturally. How talk about your approach for that? It's an interesting question, right? Like when you're like, you know, are you going to go on a dolly and track with them, or walk with them, or like, you know, it's like because right. there's a million ways to yeah. skin a cat, right? And yeah. like they all could be good in one way or another, right? And I think oftentimes it boils down to sort of an intuitive feel. You know, a, a lot of cinematographers use handheld in different ways. Like, right. and to, to me, the most effective use of handheld, what, what 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 I think maybe not the most effective, but one of the most powerful uses of of handheld, has to do with the intimacy that it creates with the person being filmed. Okay. You know, yeah. so like use Lost in Translation for an example, like the scenes with Scarlett Johansson in, in her hotel room, you know, by herself. The camera's not really moving around. It's not a handheld scene per se, right. but the camera is handheld the whole time. Even if it's a handheld lockoff, you feel a presence or interaction of the camera with her, an ob- observational sort of quality to it that really puts you in that space with her. I think like it creates maybe a sense of subjectivity that lends that intimacy because uh-huh. it's like you feel like you're there with her as yeah. opposed to objectively watching her yeah right um the scene um, when she's sitting in the window i mean yeah, I yeah a lot of I that can never even forget that it's a amazing. lot of that stuff we did that way the camera's not really moving much just right. slight little shifts but i you know that that, to, that like in, in terms of when and where to use handheld and how to use handheld i love the way it works in that that way like i, I remember there's a there's a scene in Buffalo 66. There's a couple scenes in Buffalo 66 that I really like. We shot handheld. One's like right at the beginning, like of that film where he's on the phone with his mom and he's like talking. And he, he's just yeah. he's he just finally found a bathroom in that dance studio right. and he has this there's this phone booth scene and I, you know, Vincent, his performances were pretty intense and I just remember really being moved and affected by his performance and I felt like having the camera on your shoulder you're breathing with it and moving with it you can kind of feel i think you can kind of feel my you know in reaction to his performance in a way and it can't and uh 
And that was very much too the case in, in, in Where the Wild Things Are. One of the things Spike wanted the handheld camera work in that movie to do is to kind of, in a way, capture the unpredictability okay. of, the, of the creatures. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted, he wanted this, the suit performers to act that way too, to maintain a sort of irreverence to the fragility of this little boy. They're these big creatures and they're going to do what they do. You know, like the way, you know, like in, in one of the references that we discussed and I kind of talked, uh, talked to Spike about was uh, in, in Grizzly Man, the Herzog documentary, that yeah. using that guy's own footage. Right. Um, that was the thing that, that really, like, I loved watching that film because there was this un, you know, the, the, the entirely unpredictable, you know, unpredictable. Like they yes. never knew what they were going to do, the bears. And you kind of knew what happened in the end because you yeah. knew about the film. So sure. you're always like... You know, and they, they would move in and out of shots in weird ways and be framed sometimes awkwardly at the edge of frame or they'd end up behind him and he'd have to move out of the way. But like yeah. if we could somehow have that degree of interaction and and, uh, um, you know, the camera having to adjust for being bumped by. Like I love when Max runs to the edge of the cliff and the one creature kind of bumps into him yeah. and almost knocks him out of the cliff and the cool. camera's kind of right there and Carol reaches his hand out, you know, it's yeah. like. That sort of thing where it's like you're all getting kind of jostled around in the yeah. mix. Like, I thought that that uh, you know being handheld for a lot of that really helped. You know, yeah. kind of communicate that. And what guides your decision making in films changes from film to film too, right? Right. To a large degree. So it's like making the decision of when to be on a dolly, when to be locked off, when to be handheld. Ultimately, depends a lot on the material and there some of. The decisions and where the wild things are were made for us to a degree because we were utilizing certain filmic or camera movement techniques uh, as a means to an end. You know, but with the creatures, it was really an interesting learning curve. What made them look most lifelike? You know, um, they didn't hold up well in just a like a medium, you know, a medium dolly shot. Right. tracking with them, especially if you were trying to imply any sort of dynamic movement or energy out of them. Mm -hmm. It worked way better to, to be handheld, to run along with mm -hmm. them. You know, it, it, it just enhanced the realism of their movement that way, right. you know. Is that and, something uh, you tested before? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. We tested it, and then, you know, through the course of shooting it, we discovered certain things really early on. It was like, right. well, okay, well, this, this, <laughs> we know from this that this will always look better now. So when we have other shots similar to this, other sequences that, you know, like going into the dirt cloud fight, we'd figured out a lot uh, uh, by stuff we'd shot already. So when a lot of that got handed off to second unit, I was able to meet with Brad uh, Shields and John mm -hmm. Mahaffey and, and uh, talk about, you know, this, you just got it, you know. I know it sounds, but put go for it. Put in a 75 and run with the 75 on there. I know it's going to look kind of insane, but for that piece that we're going to use, it'll be great. And it'll right. look really like they're alive, you know? Okay. Hey, one, other, one other thing I liked in the um, Where the Wild Things Are is uh, the sun flares. Yeah. There's some beautiful sun yeah. flares. And yeah, right. I don't know if I'm accurate, but it seemed like most of them were uh, with Max. Yeah, a lot of is them were. Is that true, or a lot? A lot. And was of them that purposeful, were. or um, I can't take credit for that right. being the design <laughs> of it. But you know, it's a melancholy film, and there's these certain scenes in the film where there's the intent is to sort of decompress. You know, Max is having fun; he's enjoying right. it. You know, it's like, and I, I think we used the flares a lot in those times. 
You know, we would kind of, and, and, and I think it works, works really well to do that. The first example I think would be like, well, the, the very first example is when Max runs to the cliffside with all the creatures yeah. and then they start howling and then they, yeah. you know, that's the first, the, the next example is when he wakes up after the dog pile and he wakes up in, in, uh, riding on Carol. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, that's so beautiful. and there's this beautiful kind of sun yeah. flurry scene and they're walking through a location called the beautiful forest, which is really the first time we introduce the color green. It has a wider tonal. There's pink flowers, green, blue skies, sun flare. It's the first, first real colorful scene in the movie, um, you know. And he's having his kingdom described to him. So there's a very non-linear timeline to the film, and the sun flares and the sunsets and the low light. You know, we we used it in almost more emotionally, in, in a, to to enforce the emotion of the scene than we did to necessarily indicate or specify any certain timeline because it's one thing about the the film that's interesting is that you, the timeline makes no sense whatsoever really it kind of right. goes from morning to night to it just jumps around a lot but it doesn't ever really pull you out of the film um because it's always sort of reinforcing the emotion of what's taking place in the scene right um kind of and, and it works in its own way it's interesting yeah. um yeah but that we did there was a certain lenses you know there was this one compact zoom it's like a it's a rehoused i don't even know who makes the glass in it it's, it's like this compact primo but it's not it's not the lights what's our glass in there it's like but it had a great flares and then there was this one short optimo zoom it's wide zoom that had really nice flares okay. and then we used those you know to intentionally kind of right. boost the flare mm -hmm. factor right. you know you get those little right. you know speculars and you know like uh but it, we, we definitely, through the course of filming, found which lenses yeah. were the best ones to handle that right. and look the prettiest. Cool. Yeah, I'm curious to know, what, what did you think when Spike called you and said, we're going to do this, this classic book? Um, what went through your mind? It's, it I was excited about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was really excited. You know, when he said we were going to do it with puppets... You know, like with suit performers, I was like, oh, wow, really? Like, <laughs> not, not that I would have rather done it CG. Right. It's just that I would have rather just done a movie with actors. I don't know. Right. I, I, I'm not one. I don't do it like real big effects movies with lots right. of green screen work and, uh, and, uh, and working with, like in the past I've worked with Spike. With, we did, we'd had some puppet sequences on, uh, on being John Malkovich. Sure, yeah. And like, you know, miniatures and puppets and that whole approach to cinematography, like, I love watching it, but yeah. sometimes in the process of doing it, it's like, gee, you just want to <laughs> pound your head against the wall, right? right. It's like, it's like yeah. let's just shoot some people now, right. okay? And, right. and, and cause, I mean, I think that's my... I love filming... When you film an actor and you're moved by them yeah. when you're filming, it's such a great Real. experience. Yeah. I get it when I'm shooting bands, too. It's like, yeah. sometimes when I go see a rock show and I'm used to filming them, right. like, I film this one Bjork performance at the free tibet festival in san francisco and it was so moving and just being there right in front of her and looking at her through a camera and capturing it on film was such a satisfying feeling you know yeah. and and i feel that way with actors a lot and it's like a lot of times i lose that a bit when it's animatronics sure. or whatever and so the initial discussions were about using some degree of animatronics and everything and i'm just like yeah it's just going to be this like you know <laughs> just 
just people geeking out with remote control units and <laughs> servo motors and right. you know the whole right. thing and it's right. like oh and then they're braking and it's like you know the meanwhile you have this beautiful light and right. there's a guy with a, a airplane yeah. radio control <laughs> gadget that's not working and you're like what the fuck like, we're just there was the magic and right. we were yeah. all watching you put new batteries in that thing yes. right. you know but but um you know, so there were discussions like that that went uh, that and, and and thoughts running through my mind like wow. And reading the script, it's like this whole sequence takes place. You know, there are these funny terms. Pre-dawn was a term used a ton in the script. Yeah, I love those. Pre-dawn. Pre-dawn. Okay, yeah. pre-dawn. All right, we got eighteen <laughs> pages of pre-dawn. Yeah. Like yeah. this is going to be challenging. And it's a kid <laughs> actor, and like, how are we going to light this? And yeah. like, you know, like those questions were, you know, coming up at that point, but. Just in terms of the material in the book, it's like that 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 book for me, you know, like my relationship to that book and memory of reading that book. And it's interesting because it's like I think it's a lot of people like my age kind of that read that book in the 70s, early 70s, uh, late 60s, like the like it does bring you back to that time in your life. And I, you know, I was going like, I was going through similar things that Max was in the movie at that time in my life. So it's like the, the book makes me think of that. And then the fact that the film is right. very powerful aside from the content of the book itself, the emotions that it conjures up, you know, the book, right. like thinking about the book and what it, what it, what it meant to me at that time in my life. Yeah, and it's like so many people that see the movie share that. It's interesting. Right. Yeah. It, it brings them back, or they—it's it, a trigger. So it's sort of emo the movie's very emotional, and you know what? And in, in that way, it kind of triggers people's own emotions, and they kind of bring to it their history with that book. I talked to Spike about it for a long time through the process of him writing it. You know, he was going to do another—he uh, was going to do Harold and the Purple Crayon a long time ago. Right. That was it. You know, he was really excited about that and had great ideas for that and actually had a pretty, you know, they'd been developing it for a while and it didn't happen. Some heads of the studio changed that he was wearing. It's just kind of like, you know, it got lost in that whole right. swirl. And then um, and this, and I think Marie Sindak was loosely involved with that as well. I mean, he might have been one of the producers on that. I'm not sure, but I, that may have been a little bit of the link how Spike came when, you know, because I know Maurice felt very strongly about Spike doing this from the start. Right. Um, that may have been his introduction to Spike originally. Yeah. I'm not sure, but but um, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was something we discussed a lot early, and then kind of I would you know get tidbits of information from him, and we'd have discussions about it through the process of writing, and right. it was a long process. He wrote yeah. for a little about a year and a half, and you know, then pre-production was for about a year. Wow, you know, so I was talking to him through the course right. of that whole thing. But it, how it much was, time were you? Um, on location for pre-production. I, I went down there in May and we scouted for a few weeks. And I came home and went back down in July and then came home right before Christmas. Okay. That year. Wow. So, yeah. so you're gone for half a year. So yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, you've got a young family. I mean, how do you, that, I mean, that some was, of our younger cinematographers, yeah. how do you deal with that? I mean, that was, that was great. That experience because the kids then were, what, three years younger than they are now. So, so you so, took them so, yeah Pearl was eight okay and Gus was five so you took them with you yeah okay. and Australia is amazing like yeah. Melbourne's an incredible city it's yeah. just you couldn't ask for a better 
a better place to just land with your family. But it's, you know, it gets harder as they get older, though. So, yeah. I, I mean, I've really made a conscious decision in the last year because, you know, I do a lot of work out of town on commercials, but it's more like two to three weeks out of town. Right. I've made a, I've made a conscious decision not to travel for features, you know. Right. Um, and that's how, you know, I haven't gotten these, this is the, where, where the wild things are is almost three, three years ago. And I haven't shot a feature since then. Oh, it's wow. partly due to since we got home and the age of kids are now the different things they have going on in their lives. It would be, uh, you know, I, 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 I think it'd be very disruptive to just pack up and right. travel right now. You know, right. uh, where the wild things are is your first DI. You've been working yeah. photochemically yeah. for a long time. Yeah, it was fun to do a DI. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, like I've talked about this before, just like coming up through commercials and music videos, the kind of allure of doing a DI for me when I got into features wasn't really there because it's basically right. the same thing as telecine in right. a commercial or a video. You're dealing right. with all the same tools. So for me, the finishing photochemically was like such a challenge and real, I'm really interested in the, 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 the you know, do. Also, too, just getting to see a print, an answer print off the original negative is yeah. just really exciting. You know, you're seeing exactly what you shot. And um, uh, and I've just, you know, I've, I've, enjoy, I've, I've enjoyed that process, you know, working with color timers on all. And, and, and this film was, was very different, though, in that I guess what it is, too, on the, in the films that I've done photochemically, the, sh the, the times when I've been the most frustrated is having to try to get the effect sequences to sit and like sit in with the the camera original right but like adaptation was really challenging like i guess there was would have been a really good case to have been made to have done a di on that as well right. um because there were these you well, know quite nice. a few effect sequences in that and a lot of them you know, when I see, even to this day, when I see a print of that, you know, you can just very subtly pick up on the differences that you get from that optical that comes into the, you know, yeah. grain or, right. you know, what have you. You know, there's just little uh, you know, res residual sort of subtleties that you're, you're distracting. I can't, I can't not look at them. And, and, and pretty much once you get to once you're with the creatures every frame in this film's touched in some right. way right you know so you know we knew going in that it would have it'd be more just a little cohesive overall approach if we have all these digital effects and all these shots to go ahead and do a digital intermediate also it was such a useful tool in terms of you know these extended quote pre-dawn sequences right. or sunset sequences i mean we right. shot a lot of day for night footage on this Day for um, Night's amazing. I love it. I love Day for Night it's footage. It's so beautiful. It's I like some I, of the best I've, I've seen always all loved. Time. I've always loved Day yeah. for Night footage. Like I like James Wong and Howe is like Day for <laughs> Night master. Like yeah. those sequences in HUD with the stampede and cow. I'm like doing yeah. it, doing it photochemically too. And I've I've done some that way, and it's such it's a real challenge, you know. And I I did music videos and car commercials Day for Night. I've always it's really I think it's amazing. I think it's an amazing technique, and with the DI, you can really push it. You know. Did you do um, a lot of testing to to find I mean, it? We did for a fair amount. Well, it was like we did, we did. I mean, I, I I've done quite a bit of it, so I had a pretty good understanding of what would work and what wouldn't work. Um, the creatures were a little bit of an X factor in terms of the fur and how much light the fur would absorb and how much fill they would need, and the, which was a really interesting lesson. Like going into the film, you know, in the tests. 
uh, and in some of the, you know, the photography that we did going into the film, um, I was always trying to maintain a certain level of fill light in the creature's faces so you could see into their eyes and I was worried that the fur would be absorbing too much light. But in some ways, like I felt like if there was a couple of scenes if I could do again, I would have even gotten rid of that, you know, because letting their faces go dark in the end, the CG animation with some of the darker faces for some of my favorite. I must have been a real pain in the neck for them, but the end result was kind of great because the eyes just had this real subtle luminance yeah. in them. And they were able to use the eyeballs that were in the heads when we shot. Those were reflective, so it gave them a oh, bit really? of like a map to use. Okay. But they also, uh, you know, would, you know, that we that was one thing I was like really concerned with and talked to the effects supervisor a lot about going in early. And some of the initial tests, they did what I feared they would, which was just automatically apply a very sharp specular reflection to the eyeballs to just bring you know that old rule if you don't have the specular reflection the eyes lack life or something right. you know like yeah. in you know i think it's a very kind of conventional approach to always have that eye light yeah which you know modern cinema you you hardly see it at all you know you mm -hmm. don't really need that sometimes it's that glaze or sheen and that's much more beautiful and you know the color and and they were able to even in these shots of the creatures that were quite underlit able to bring that in and I, I thought it was amazing um but the day for night though like some of the more challenging situations were that was in dappled forest light like when the dappled light would play like moonlight and when the dappled light uh got the most problematic was when you were dealing with dappled light as well as light through the trees on the horizon line mm. and then it just fell apart a little bit for looking like night like you wouldn't have that hot hot light deep background coming through the trees um at the plane of the horizon line and then getting darker as it went up it just right. didn't really make sense it'd be the opposite for night and so we did some tests with that but sometimes we were faced with situations where we just kind of had to shoot in it but what worked best for those dappled light situations was to raise the camera more and just kind of shoot into the ground and let the ground mm -hmm. fall off. And then those dappled hits, once you colored them and reduced the contrast. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about DI that chroma and contrast, yeah. like to be able to control those, yeah. you know, cause I think like using low con filters and, and, uh, really controlling your palette will get you quite a ways there photochemically and you right. could do a pretty convincing day for night effect with exposure low con filtrate like you but to be able to selectively dial those in you know because the first thing like in even in dailies i went and set up kind of a a lut for the telecine for dailies just okay this will be our day for night setting more or less you can tweak it but you're going to default to this the first thing was just to take the contrast and bring it way back uh, and uh, take the uh, chroma and, 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 and bring it way back. So you had a desaturated and then the color temperature itself would just make it cooler. You know, right. we didn't go blue, blue. It yeah. was more like a gray sort of green blue. Yeah, it was like um, cyan. And yeah, so beautiful. Yeah, and, 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 and then just really desaturating it. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, that that was the one thing for me just always... You know, like photochemically, the one challenge is chroma. Mm -hmm. You know, and film stocks do it, but then when Kodak, you know, replaces, right. <laughs> you know, sixty-three with eighteen, right? You know, it's like, well, okay, yeah. You know, why is that guy in blue jeans like the? You know, the the, the blue jeans look totally faded, and now on the film they're like blue, blue, yeah, like exactly. jumping out at you. Right, you know, right. it's like, 
you know, not being able to control chroma in a, you know, it, it's, it's just way more challenging. I mean, you can do it with exposure and everything, but I was talking to Chris Nolan about it, you know, yeah. like he's real when it comes yeah. to DIs, he's just such a purist. He just won't touch them. Right. It's incredible. <laughs> like, you know, do a movie like Batman <laughs> yeah, I know. I and finish it photochemically. Yeah, it's it's like incredible, it's right? It's amazing. And he and Wally Pfister, like yeah. that is miraculous. That's yeah. such an achievement. Yeah. And his reasoning for doing it, I kind of understand, but not, not entirely. I think a lot of it does boil down to a, almost, I mean, it really is. It's just this purest yeah. aesthetic. And, you know, that, that film was different too because they shot those sequences on IMAX. And yeah. to do an IMAX photochemical finish is incredible. You got yeah. this giant, and it's like, you know, it's like shooting with an 8x10 view camera, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, the, the, to be able to do those sequences photochemically, like that's incredible. See a print of that. But I have to say, I don't really view that. I, to me, every project's its own thing. And it's yeah. like, I don't feel like we could have made this movie in the same way if we didn't do a DI. Not right. because of the creature effects, but because of the lighting of it. Yeah. All those day for night sequences would have been right. just really... Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know how we would have done it. Um, I would say you've had some you know, amazing creative success in your career at this point, but you're still relatively young. Um, what what do you see yourself doing five or That's ten years That's very flattering, Things well, that I've just hit the 45-year mark. Relatively young, right? Well, I said relatively. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like five or ten years from now, um, what do you... Um, have you maybe yeah. you haven't thought about that yet? Well, you know, I I still I could see I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing right now. You know, I, there's projects I'm working on right now. There's a I'm, I'm doing this project I was telling you about with the guys from Monsters of Folk. It's oh, a yeah. you know it's a, it, they they approached me about doing a film a long a long form film. You know, it's going to be narratively structured film that's based on some of the characters in their songs. Right. That's something I'll Sounds be dir- really cool. yeah I'll be directing and shooting. It'll be yeah. it'd be interesting. And, um, you know, we, through Park Pictures and my partner, Jackie, you know, we're developing some different projects as well. We're yeah. developing this uh, television show and we're developing a movie. Oh, cool. So doing stuff like that. Do you want to direct a film? Yeah. 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 I'd love to. Okay. I'd love cool. to. I, I feel like I'd like to try, you yeah. know, give it a shot. I was just, I was like, uh, Caleb Deschanel is a, 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 I, I really love his work. He's an American yeah. cinematographer. It's great. The ASC's doing a, yeah. a, tr- a tribute you know to his life's work i think Absolutely. he's incredible he's inc- god yeah. he's just shot amazing you know so many you know in fact one of his films and his camera work i'd say if there was any one film that was an influence on where the wild things are it's carol ballard's uh, black stallion you know yeah. the, that that sequence of him arriving on the island and waking up right. and, i mean that that was a huge inspiration yeah. for me on this film I, 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 as a filmmaker carol ballard's a bit like i I, lo- I, I like his films, his choices, yeah. uh, like that, that, the way his camera. I, I feel I can really relate to his approach to filmmaking. Yeah, I love um, Never Cry Wolf as well. It's amazing, right? Yeah. I love how that film shot. I yeah. mean, that's how I would shoot a movie. It kind of feels like that's like kind of I appreciate that style and approach. And Terrence Malick is another filmmaker yeah. that for me, I just love his whole approach to filmmaking and the way he makes images. But. Uh, but um, Caleb, I, I didn't realize it, but I was looking at his, his filmography. He directed a film. I'd be curious to wow. be curious to see that. I, yeah. I, yeah, I was I was just I was just looking at his filmography recently. I think it's I think it's a good exercise for a cinematographer. Maybe it's something you only do once, and <laughs> or, 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 you know, maybe it's something you continue to do. It's interesting 
how few cinematographers do jump into that seat. Right. You know, I, I you know I know like ha- ha- Haskell Wexler was a pretty. Yeah, yeah, I mean he did he did he did he did a pretty pretty good. You know. He, uh, a medium cool is amazing. Yeah, 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 like but more documentaries, right? I mean, right. that's that's his. Yeah. I think uh, if nothing else, it'll be a learning exercise, right? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs>